This podcast is brought to you by the IIEA, the Institute of International and European Affairs. Join the discussion on IIEA.com and access our engaging videos, blogs and podcasts. Good afternoon. A very warm welcome to you all, and I hope you're keeping well and staying safe. My name is Joyce O'Connor, and I chaired the digital group here at the IIEA. You're all very welcome to our webinar today, where we will discuss the proposition, a transatlantic partnership for Europe's digital future with Carl Bildt. I'm delighted, Carl, to welcome you back to Dublin. Um, it's a long while since you've been here in person, but we're absolutely delighted to see you virtually. Carl, as you know, is co-chair of the European Council on Foreign Relations and is the former Prime Minister and Foreign Minister of Sweden. Carl, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to be with us today. We appreciate it very much and we look forward to your presentation. This is the third event in the IIEA project entitled Europe's Digital Future, which is supported by Google. This project is exploring the topic of digital sovereignty in Europe. It's a year-long project of events and research, exploring what the concept means and what future it might hold for the Europe, uh, Europe in general and for small local e economies like Ireland in particular. Carl will speak to us for about 20 minutes or so, and then we will go to you, the audience, for questions and answers. Please feel free to join in discussion during Carl's presentation. You will see the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen. You may wish to send in your questions throughout the webinar. I will come back to you then when Carl has finished his presentation. And I'd very much appreciate if you would give your name and designation when you give your presence, when you give in your questions. A reminder that this event is on the record, both the presentation and the Q&A. Please join us on our discussion on Twitter with our handle using the IIEA. Over the last year, I think we can safely say that we've been all preoccupied with COVID-19 and its effects. It is certainly true of our European leaders. Today, Carl Bolt will alert us to another looming crisis, and that is of a digital emergency. This crisis he sees is placed in the context of a strain in the EU and US digital relationships. This strain cannot be ignored as Europe is falling rapidly and inexcusably behind China and the US in its digital transition. We will hear from Carl about the importance of the Atlantic Digital Partnership, where the US and the EU can join forces on digital policy and digital trade. The role of emerging technologies such as AI, quantum computing, blockchain will create opportunities for forward-looking cooperation. As Carl sees us, Europe has a choice in determining its digital future. It can either work towards a digital sovereignty or seek a digital partnership. Has that time come? I think Carl's presentation is very timely. Carl, as you know, has a very distinguished career to date. He has served, as I said, as both Prime Minister and Foreign Minister of Sweden. 
He was an early advocate of ICT's technologies and was one of the first to send an email exchange between himself and President Clinton. And that was the first email between heads of states. That was back in 1994. You may not remember that, Carl, but it is, it is a marker of your interest and historical significance. Carl has served on corporate boards in the US and Sweden, as well as on different international think tanks. He was co-chair of the Dayton Peace Talks on Bosnia and became their first high representative in the country. Currently is co-chair, as I said, of the European Council on Foreign Relations. He is a columnist in the Washington Post and Project Syndicate, as many of you know. He recently chaired the Global Commission on Internet Governments. He is on the board of the RAND Corporation in the US and is one of the senior advisors to the Wallenberg Foundations in Sweden. Carl, we look forward to your presentation. Thank you very much. And I would have liked to be able to say that it's nice to be in Dublin. Um, yes. But it's nice to be in Dublin also in this digital sense. I have fond memories of discussions over previous years at the IIA and I'm, I'm impressed with the commitment that you have to uh, making your contribution, not only to the Irish debate, but indeed to the European debate. That's what we need. We need more of a think tank dialogue on the issues that are facing us together, so as to make it easier for policymakers and policy shapers of different sorts to move us forward together. Uh, you referred to the fact that I've said sometimes that we face a digital emergency in Europe. I said that to a certain extent, not as a reaction to, but uh, inspired by the fact that there's a lot of people saying that we, find we are facing a climate emergency. I'm not denying that, but I'm just saying that for all of the attention that we give to the climate issues, I think there's high time to give more attention to the digital issues, what we need to do, what we have to do, and uh, how we will shape the digital future of Europe. Because what is happening is I think fairly obvious and it's taken a giant leap forward during these very difficult months now a year that we have been struggling with COVID and with the pandemic and with all of the restrictions. We are, in, we are leaving the industrial age and we are entering the digital age. I mean, sometimes there is talk about the fourth industrial revolution. I think that is not entirely correct. I think it's far more than that. It is leaving the age of the industrial revolution and entering the age of the digital revolution. And in much the same way as we know that the industrial revolution in its different stages transformed not only our societies but in our world in virtually every respect, power relationships between different parts of the world notably, the same will obviously happen as we enter the digital age. And we should understand that we are only in the rather faint beginning of the digital age and the transformation it will entail. I'm fond of making the historical comparison with the beginning of the, uh, of the industrial age. We started really sort of in England or Britain or whatever we prefer to call it with the sort of the, the steam engine and the coal mines and whatever. And that made it possible for Great Britain of those days to develop a world empire and be the leading power of the world for perhaps nearly a century. Then the Americans obviously took over for a number of reasons, and we are now in the same development that uh, we are probably, I would say, we are, if we make that comparison, 
we are in the stage of the second generation steam engine. We are at that stage of the digital revolution. And that is a way of saying we're only in the beginning. There's enormous amount of things that is going to happen and it's going to profoundly change our world. So then where are we in terms of the different powers of the world? I think it's fairly obvious that we are now primarily in a race between the United States and China. The United States remains the innovation superpower of the world, the innovative potential of the US economy with all of the other problems that the US economy have, has is impressive. We see, uh, we live by devices and technologies that to a large extent have their origin in that innovative atmosphere, that innovative entrepreneurial atmosphere that is associated with the Silicon Valley and with the United States. They remain the innovation superpower. But there are the Chinese and they are coming from virtually nowhere if we go back 15 and 20 years in time. And although it's popular to say that they've been developing by stealing technology, of course they have to some extent. Catch-up countries normally do. Um, but we should not underestimate the entrepreneurial potential of China. And what we see them if the United States is to simplify somewhat, the innovation superpower still, China is developing as the application superpower. Uh, they are extremely good at taking the technologies and making applications of them. We don't see all of that as of yet because China is its own sphere, but uh, what they're doing in terms of different technologies and application of this is profoundly impressive and will shape the world as we go ahead. And as said, um, in spite of the intense rivalry between the two, the synergy between them is very important. If you look at the eight leading technology companies in the world, uh, two things could be said. None of them existed 20 years ago. Um, and of the eight companies, five are American and three are Chinese. There's not a single European company among the leading technology companies of the world. And that is, of course, uh, a memento to us Europeans. If you talk about the Industrial Revolution, well, there are significant European companies that are still there. But if you talk of those shaping the digital age, we are not really there. The Brussels debate, which is important because it shapes a lot of the things that are happening in the European Union, has tended, in my opinion, to be too dominated by the necessity to regulate uh, the different digital phenomena, primarily uh, an urge to regulate the big platform economy, the platforms that are so important to our economies at the moment. There's been a fear that all the Facebooks and the whatever uh, are going to take over our world. And we Europeans would be the regulatory superpower to make certain that this is done in a good way. I'm not saying that there isn't a need to regulate the platforms. There is. Uh, we have that debate in Europe. We have that debate on the other side of the Atlantic as well. But I'm somewhat worried that there's too much focus on that and too little on what I think we really need to concentrate on. And that is the need to innovate. You can regulate what was innovated yesterday. But the real important thing is to innovate what's going to happen there tomorrow. What's going to be there five or ten years out while the platforms are essentially something that was created 10 or 15 years ago, although it's their full impact on the global economy is seen now. There are good examples. GDPR, 
I think it's somewhat too cumbersome for small and medium-sized enterprises. I hope there will be a possibility to look at it and simplify it somewhat. But it is, of course, an expression of the fact that privacy of different sorts is uh, a European concern, perhaps slightly more than what we find, certainly than in China. They don't have much of a choice in that respect, uh, but also to a certain extent, of course, in the United States. Why are we then lagging behind? Uh, if we look at the number of unicorns, uh, companies, startups, high-tech startups that have gone more than a billion dollars in, in worth, uh, I lost the figures as a matter of fact, but I mean, you know, roughly, uh, we are severely lacking behind. I look at the figures for Sweden today, we have five new of them, uh, not too bad uh, by European comparison, but it ought to be more. But if I look at them, what's the reason we are falling behind? And I would identify three reasons for that. The first is that we are lagging behind in basic spending on research and development. Uh, there, there, there was a commitment by the EU countries uh, quite some time ago, I think in 2000, as a matter of fact, which is nearly a generation ago by now, to spend 3% of GDP on R&D. Um, after 20 years, we aren't there. Uh, Sweden and Finland mm -hmm. spends more than 3%, but nearly everyone else is behind, and I think the average is 2.4 or something like that. While we see both the Americans and the Chinese now increasing spending tremendously and increasing spending primarily or to a large extent on basic research, which is even more important because that's where you really get the real potential for innovation. So that's the number one factor. We must step up spending on basic research in these areas. We've got the talent. We're not more stupid than the others. But of course, uh, talent goes to where the research money is. They go to, for example, from Europe quite a lot. They go to the big American universities yeah. because they are better funded than the European ones. That's fairly obvious. Uh, yeah. Secondly, is capital. Um, if you start a company, if you've got this brilliant idea coming out of university or technical high school or whatever, uh, and you start the company and you start growing, you need capital and you need venture capital. And you need it fast and you need it in great quantities. Um, that's a problem in the European economies. It's far better than it used to be, but it's not enough. Uh, there was a study done of Nordic startups. And normally at the third round of financing, uh, they go to the US. Not that they sort of have a genetic tendency to go to the US, but they go to the US because the money is there. They can't, the depth of the capital markets and of venture capital isn't enough in Europe to finance fast-moving technology startups. And accordingly, we lose them primarily uh, to the US. Uh, another moment is, of course, that if you compare European countries, the country that is doing better than others are the Brits. And you might have noticed that they have left the European Union. So um, that makes the EU figures even more disturbing. And the third reason is, of course, the market size. Uh, if you have that sort of successful startup and you finance and finance um, you also need to have income and that is to go to the market and the american market is more integrated uh, and accordingly you, you, you can reach the market size that you need to be self-sustaining uh, faster on the u.s market than you can do it on the european markets because we have not yet been as successful as we would have wanted to be on the digital single market these three reasons spending on basic research venture capital 
and market size, I think, are the reasons why we are not having that uh, possibility to develop as fast as otherwise would have been the case. As I said, a lot of the discussion in Europe is um, in terms of digital sovereignty or digital autonomy or what it is, and regulate the American platforms. I mean, there's merit in some of that. But I would argue that we need to look at the bigger picture as we look ahead. There is the rivalry between the United States and China. Uh, and we see it primarily in the field of, of, of technology. And if you look at the transatlantic world, and we go back some years, you remember that we had something called a TTIP. We tried to have a transatlantic trade and investment partnership, uh, which was going to be sort of the, the economic equivalent to NATO in terms of a bond across the Atlantic and setting the standards for the world. And then, of course, setting the standards for the world, because if you linked up the Atlantic economies, that in itself was going to be sort of the global standard by definition. Now, TTIP is gone and will not come back. There's not an appetite for those sorts of things with the Biden administration. It um, uh, wasn't with the Trump administration either, needless to say. But we need perhaps to focus now on the digital space instead, where we Europeans can try to go it alone, but we will not catch up with the Americans. We will not catch up with the Chinese sufficiently mm. fast. But we can tie in with Americans more than we have been doing so far. The European Commission put a paper on the table in late December as an invitation to the Biden administration. And a part of that paper is to have a digital partnership and set up a council between the US and the Commission in this particular case to discuss these tech issues and what we can do together. And I think that is the way to go. There are quite complicated issues that needs to be sorted out quite fast. And one of them that is rather acute is the question of data transfers. Um, nowadays, well, we have container ships across the oceans with all of the goods. That's still very important, particularly today when the Suez Canal has been blocked by a container ship. But even more important is, of course, the digital flows. That is really the lifeblood blood of the global economy. And that data flow has been somewhat regulated. And we have the problem that the European the EU court has been turned down the, uh, the agreements that have been there between the EU and the US on the free flow of privacy of personal information across the Atlantic. That needs to be unblocked. Because if we have sort of walls that prevent the free flow of data uh, between Europe, EU, and US, that will inhibit the development of the transatlantic global economy. We also have this thing called United Kingdom in the middle of it that has to decide where they are going to be in this particular situation. Now, privacy concerns are there, but there are privacy concerns in the US as well. Um, and we are in this slightly bizarre situation that since the European Court of Justice, or EU Court of Justice to be precise, uh, they can't go into what individual countries do because of national security. So they can't have any right over the sort of surveillance that the Belgians or the French have, but they can have views on what the Americans do. So what they've done now is to say that the Americans are somewhat too intrusive for their taste. But as a matter of fact, the Americans in, these, in a number of these fields are less intrusive than are the French, to take that as a concrete example. And that makes it, of course, a fairly difficult dialogue 
across the Atlantic when we are saying to the Americans, you have to change in order to respect privacy, but we don't care about the French uh, who are doing even more in this particular issue. Here we need a dialogue fairly fast in order to prevent uh, blockages of the data flow, which are absolutely central also to innovation and to research um, in this particular space. We need to sort out issues of digital taxation. I don't need to go into that. I mean, you've had examples relating to Ireland as well uh, concerning that. Uh, long term, of course, the digital economy will need another taxation system that it has adjusted as what happens with the industrial age came instead of the agricultural age. That sort of affected the taxation system over time. But this has to be done together. We can't do that in confrontation because then we create another layer of new barriers across the Atlantic. And then we need to look far more thoroughly at what we can do together in terms of basic research and the flow of uh, knowledge and innovation across the Atlantic. Artificial intelligence will shape the future. Mm. And uh, there are now sort of massive investments underway in artificial intelligence. Uh, money in Europe as well, needless to say, but nothing uh, compared, or very little compared with what we see in the United States and what we see in China. Uh, we have a fairly big program underway in Sweden in terms of quantum computing, um, mm -hmm. which is sort of 10 years out when it comes to real applications, but will have a transformative effect if that succeeds. But even if I can be proud of what is done in Sweden in this particular aspect, uh, we are a small country. And we are sort of dependent upon other European countries being part of that particular race as well and lining up with the Americans. I think the basic strategic issue is that if we try to do all of this alone, say digital sovereignty and do things that, if not by design, but then by default, makes it more difficult to cooperate across the Atlantic. We are over time leaving this particular race to the Americans and to the Chinese. There are, and I will conclude on that, there are areas where we are successful and where we are uh, dominating uh, in the, on the global tech space. Um, Sweden and Finland has two of the leading companies in the world when it comes to 5G. Uh, so we are technology leaders. We have been technology leaders in that technology for 20 years. But it is somewhat sad to note, uh, and everyone agrees that 5G will be key to the next stage in economic development. And when you add AI to it as well, even more transformative. But it is somewhat uh, uh, sorry to note that uh, the Chinese are way ahead of the Americans in the rollout of 5G, part of that supplied by European companies, by the way. And the Americans are far ahead of the Europeans, almost all of it supplied by European companies. And that illustrates the fact that while we can have sometimes the technology leadership, uh, we evidently don't have the regulatory and other environment to uh, implement it sufficiently fast. We are years behind the Americans and the Americans are years behind the Chinese on 5G based on European technologies. Here at least, if we coordinated somewhat more with Americans, so we were catching up with them, that would make it easier for us together to catch up with the Chinese. Otherwise, I think we're heading forward that is going to be dominated by a continued rivalry between Americans and Chinese and um, 
we Europeans left behind in the dust. Thank you. Carl, thank you so much for that presentation. You've set, in a sense, the roadmap very clearly ahead and the choices that we have. And in some ways, you make a very compelling argument for that alignment between the EU and the US. And I suppose, you know, when you, you said that the, the previous attempts at, you know, TTIP were, you know, has gone, I don't know what you think about um, Senator Mark Warner's attempt now for a democracy technology partnership uh, that he's putting through Congress at the moment. You know, what are your thoughts on this development? Would that address some of the issues that you've raised so clearly? I haven't, I haven't seen uh, the details of that particular uh, proposal, but I've seen other proposals and I, I, coming out of the think tank community in DC, and I think that probably he's inspired by them. That's quite a lot of regulatory approach. Um, Again, yes. Absolutely. Uh, control certain of the technology <coughs> might not be bad in itself, uh, but I still think that we need to focus more on innovation. Yeah. Because you, 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 you can regulate the technology of today or of yesterday, uh, but hardly what comes tomorrow. And, and, and it's really sort of innovate in order to be shaped, in order to be able to shape the future that I think is, is the key. Um, but clearly, um, there's a need to look at certain technologies and control them so that yes. they are not uh, working in favor of uh, more authoritarian systems of of governments. Um, going back to uh, what I discussed on the privacy shield and safe harbor and the data transfer problems across the Atlantic, that has to do with the fact that sort of governments do have the need to undertake a certain amount of surveillance. I mean, that's done in Sweden um, for intelligence and for domestic security purposes. But what we do in our countries, we have it fairly, fairly, fairly detailed, regulated by law and by parliamentary oversight. And uh, we should be open and honest about that, but we should also have an element of common standards on how you do that in democracies, uh, understanding that there are other regimes that do it very differently. And that's an area where clearly democracies have to work together, common standards, and then perhaps to the extent that we can not supply technologies uh, that are used for these purposes to regimes that have another orientation. Easier said than done has to be said because some of them are fairly good in themselves. Thanks, Carl. I've got a, a question here now coming in from the audience from Paul Sweeney, who's an economist, economist and an IIEA member. And he asks the question, uh, would you support a more interventionist EU industrial policy to encourage EU tech firms to grow? Or do you prefer a hands-off free market system or a combination of interventionist EU states in the market? Well, as I said, I mean, the three things that I would focus on is the spending on basic research. Um, and that's, that's public money. Mm -hmm. uh, development is to a large extent done by, uh, by, uh, by industry. Uh, I don't know the European figures, but I know the Swedish figures. I mean, we spend 3.4% of GDP on R&D, uh, but 0.9% of that is basic research. The rest is development um, done really by four or five uh, big industries, but base, basic research. 
the second, uh, as I mentioned, is venture capital. Um, mm -hmm. Must be available. I mean, there's a taxation issue there, and there's a regulatory issue when it comes to that part of the capital markets. Uh, we need to do better in terms of venture capital markets, and we need to have the digital signal market, which is, of course, a question of sort of deregulating or have the common regulation across Europe. I could have add, uh, I mentioned 5G towards the end. Uh, the fact that we uh, we allocate spectrum differently in the different EU countries yes, yeah. means that it's very difficult uh, to roll out 5G as fast as the Americans and the, uh, and the Chinese do it. Uh, it might be somewhat utopian, but if we have sort of a, a common European spectrum space that we allocated in common, I think that would make it far easier for uh, for for that part of it. Industrial policies, hey, yeah. uh, sometimes, sometimes there could be need for public spending, uh, but I do think that if if uh, and and basic research, absolutely. Um, but if you look at sort of the innovation potential of the uh, American economy, it is to a large extent coming in the private mm. sector. Um, if you look at the Chinese economy. Um, it's just the same, as a matter of fact. I mean, the, the really innovative uh, Chinese companies, um, they are sort of private entrepreneurs. Uh, they mm. sometimes get state support in terms of financial markets, uh, but it's not the big state-owned corporations that are driving the Chinese economy. They are drag mm. on, the, on the Chinese economy. Then EU has certain programs that I think can be useful. They have the battery alliance at the moment trying to get sort of uh, help big battery producing facilities come up and running in Europe. Mm -hmm. They talk about a hydrogen alliance. They are talking some countries about sort of cloud computing systems that we should set up, perhaps. I'm not entirely certain of that. I think the market might do it better and there is no, no, no inherent reasons why we Europeans can do it better than others can do it. But I mean, might be. Uh, but I wouldn't spend, uh, I, I would prefer to spend the taxpayers' money, I would spend uh, primarily on basic research uh, to give the talents that we have in Europe really the possibility to come up with ideas. To develop. Yeah. But one of the things you've said before, Carl, is that is, is a kind of more basic thing, isn't it, about the culture in Europe and the values and particularly the entrepreneurial culture and greater risk aversion is that is you know we've heard about this for a long time do you think there's been a change or what fundamentally is it about europe that this has been always a criticism that we lack that entrepreneurial flair yeah it's a fact um you can discuss why um mm. history is a rather complicated thing <laughs> yes. um, but 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 I think it should be said it's better now than it was twenty years ago. I mean yes. I, I I can look at my own country primarily, uh, where it was a fairly barren landscape uh, twenty five years ago. But it's now a much more vibrant landscape, mm. and uh, we do see startups and interesting companies appearing all over the place. Mm. Um, so we are gathering speed in Europe. No question about that. Um, yeah. I had reason to look at sort of Ukraine uh, as an example where sort of IT outsourcing is booming. Um, so things are happening, but uh, we need to do whatever we can to speed up that particular process. Mm. 
Yeah, no, so I think things are improving of what you said about Sweden is definitely true uh, of Ireland as well. You mentioned about the uh, cloud and, you know, the Guy-X project yeah. for a European crowd is often considered a flagship initiative for the European digital sovereignty, but it's open to US companies to participate. Andrew Gilmore asks, do, do you have thoughts around that for, you know, for the future in terms of that tech alliance with the with the US? Well, let's see. Uh, I haven't made up my mind because I've not been able to get sufficient information on what it really would entail. Mm -hmm. um, with cloud, you, you are, you are, sometimes you hear the fears that sort of uh, uh, if you have your data up in the cloud, you don't control your data. Yes. And, and if the data is located uh, when the cloud is located, God knows where, mm -hmm. you lose control of the particular data. Uh, to me, the answer of that is not the location of the cloud, but the encryption of the data. If, 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 I, if I can have reliable encryption of my data, mm. uh, it can be stored anywhere uh, because they can't access the data anyhow. Um, and and uh, encryption is a somewhat sensitive subject sometimes, mm. uh, not talked about too much, uh, but absolutely key. And mm. I, I have been fighting political battles, by the way, with the European security agencies that okay. have been discussing to have backdoors and whatever to uh, encryption. I'm distinctly against that. Mm. Uh, um, I, I, I think we should have the right to secure our data. And if we have the right to secure our data, if, if that cloud is located in Norway or, or Nicaragua, uh, okay. isn't necessarily the deciding uh, feature. That one should be aware of. It's uh, then there are, other, there are other aspects of the security of it, needless to say. I mean, there's a sort of um, the, the, the cables and the satellites and, and, and things like that. But I would say the encryption is more important than the location of the server in question. Um, would you see, you know, emerging technologies like the blockchain technologies, would that help in that regard in terms of security, trust and transparency? Or do you think that's that's something you know, we, we just don't know enough about yet. Um, I think it could, it could be helpful. I mean, the applications that could be distinctly helpful. It's one of these technologies that are starting to uh, develop, um, uh, associated very much with sort of Bitcoin and digital currencies, but there are numerous other applications uh, where blockchain will be uh, very important. So absolutely, it's one of the technologies that could be very helpful as, as, yeah, as yeah. we move along. And there is a kind of push on that blockchain technology and is an area perhaps where Europe could really take a, a lead in it if we work together, because that's the nature of that technology. That, that is the nature of the technology, but, but the nature of the technology is often, is often uh, global. Just to tell stories about that. I mean, I, 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 you mentioned I was heading the global uh, global Internet Commission yeah. on Global Internet Governance uh, a couple of years ago. And I, I remember I had hardly heard about blockchain uh, because this was quite some time ago. And I had a very good friend, uh, Chinese from Hong Kong, uh, mm -hmm. one of the really brilliant people. And we were sitting in South Korea and he said to me, do, do you want to meet a person that has really done blockchain is one of the best in the world? Yeah. And I said, okay, blockchain. Okay. So I, I met the guy and he was a Bulgarian. Uh, working in South Korea, I couldn't understand anything of what he said. Um, 
but anyhow, he was a Bulgarian working in South Korea. Yeah. And then I got an email from the same Chinese friend uh, a month or two ago and said, do you want to meet another one uh, of the most brilliant guys? Yeah. yeah. I said, well, he happened to be a Swede um, yeah. working in California, but he was at home. Um, and these are sort of a communities of really innovative thinkers yes. that you can't, you can't pin them down to geographic locations. They're all over the no, place. That's true, yes. Um, and, and, and we must connect to that, that sort that's of uh, group of truly innovative people who you find all over the world and that connect with each yeah. other jurisdiction, <coughs> your jurisdiction. And I think that is beginning to happen. And it's because they have a vision of what that technology can do to change the world for the better. I, I think that's, you know, that's what kind of brings them together, that collaboration. Mm. I have a question here from New York City from Ted Smith. Um, could European universities do more to free its faculty to create joint ventures with for-profit tech startups as is in the model in the US? Yes, uh, I, I, I assume they can do more. Uh, I don't know exactly how it is in every, every single European country, uh, but in Sweden, certainly, um, there has been a con conscious effort uh, to make it more possible. Mm -hmm. And um, we've also seen concrete examples of that. Um, whether that is the model in all of the European countries, I don't know. Uh, but mm. really that, that is important, uh, and that is a question sometimes of complicated IP rights. Uh, where do they rest, with the university or with the individual yeah. or whatever? But these things can be sorted out, and I, I, I think it is moving in the right direction. Yeah, I know here we've started some very innovative links between industry and universities around PhD programs where they work with industry on an industry problem and have worked out those issues beforehand. And that kind of offers real possibilities. Um, I'm a great believer if funding is geared towards cooperation like that, you know, researchers will, will follow that if they see they're at leading edge technologies, I think can be very, very instructive. I have a question here now from Emily Binchy. How would you interpret President Biden's nomination of Lena Khan as the FTC commissioner? Could this point to alignment of antitrust competition policies relating to tech joints in the US and the EU? It remains to be seen. Mm. Uh, I would hope that there would be a dialogue on these issues. I don't think it has started as of yet. We are only sort of... Uh, weeks, two months uh, into the uh, new American administration. Uh, but clearly this is an area that where there should be a dialogue uh, between Washington and, uh, and Brussels. And, and I would add that I'm encouraged by the fact that there is talk not only about a dialogue between the administration, but also dialogue between the people in the European Parliament doing these things mm. and, 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 and the people in US Congress. Um, so um, complicated as these issues are, because they are, uh, we saw that in the TTIP negotiations, yeah. among other things, uh, clearly it is an area where they, they should be talking. And, and perhaps this US-EU uh, tech council that they are now discussing setting up, um, mm. I, I haven't heard anything lately, but um, today uh, Tony Blinken, Secretary of State, 
is in Brussels and talking to both the Commission President and the High Representative and others. And I would assume, I would hope that this is one of the items on the agenda. I mean, one of the things you talked about, Carl, is the importance of the US-EU cooperation due to shared democratic values. We'll go back to those values again. Is there a role for other leading yep. democracies like Japan or India in a partnership? Yes, uh, yes, that definitely is. Uh, and, and I would put particular stress on India. Uh, yeah. Because India is, uh, it's a large place. To mm. put in those terms, it's going to be the most populous nation in the world. Um, it, it is a democracy. I mean, we can have our sort of doubts about certain of the policies that are undertaking at the moment, but it is basically a messy democracy as our messy democracies are. Um, uh, it has a lot of tech potential. Um, and uh, I see them doing a lot of thinking uh, along these lines. Uh, when I was working more concretely with uh, the digital, global digital issues, uh, I had reason to spend quite some time in Delhi. I go there on the same issues now and then. I'm, as a matter of fact, heading there in a couple of weeks uh, because they think about these issues. And they are, I would say, sometimes that they are in a swing position in the world. Mm. If we have a position where we, sort of the classical old Western countries, are up against China, then, and, and the battleground is the global South, mm. then where India heads up uh, is tremendously important. Then from the technology point of view, of course, Japan and yes. South Korea, perhaps even yes. South Korea, Mm. is um, a country of uh, high significance. And do we foster enough links with South Korea? You know, do you think we are slow to work with them, you know, more so than, than other countries? Or has that begun to change? Well, we have, uh, from the EU side, of course, we've got a free trade agreement that's been working uh, rather well. Um, I don't think we have a digital trade provisions in those agreements. And that, that's one of the problems that I see coming up, by the way, that there's been a reluctance by Brussels to have sort of digital trade provisions in the trade agreements. Um, for example, in the CPTPP, as it's called mm. these days in the Pacific, they have it. Uh, but we don't have it in agreement with Japan, for example. Uh, so if we can get those particular provisions, mm -hmm. those agreements, they would help. Um, then um, um, I know I, I can say from the, from, from the Swedish side, of course, there uh, has been quite a lot of technology cooperation, both with Japan and yes. South Korea, Ericsson and Samsung are, um, Samsung is much yes, bigger, yeah. much broader, uh, but in, in terms of mobile communication, they are in the same field and, uh, and have, have a lot of working together as well. And just going back to China again and, and the kind of values issue, do you think China's lack of adequate, you know, human rights and, you know, privacy protection gives us an edge against the, or gives it an edge against the EU and the US in some sectors, such as big data and AI? Or is that such a fundamental, I mean, Europe has put a lot of emphasis on uh, you know ethics and AI and the, to differentiate us from other and to, in fact saying that will give us the edge if we work around those issues. Uh, you know what what do you think? 
Well, I'm not entirely convinced by that argument. I, I hope the argument is correct, uh, but I wouldn't be that certain that it is. Um, they have an edge uh, when it comes to sort of access to, uh, to, to data. Um, some people are telling me that it might not be that important as we think it is. It's also the depth of the data that, that, is, uh, that is important. And if, yeah. if, 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 we, if we sort of pursue our policies rightly, I would hope that we have the, and we do have on paper, the free flow of, of non-personal data inside EU. And, and, yes. and of course, a lot of the development of AI is also on things that are not really dependent upon personal information, although they are- That's right, yeah. Often mixed. But um, you, you, you've spent a, bit of, a little bit of time talking about GDPR mm -hmm. um, and that it's too cumbersome for you know, small and medium-sized industries and, and uh, any small group because effectively whether you're a big company or a small company it's it's applied do you think that is a real issue or it, because it seemed to have addressed that issue of privacy protection and the rights of the citizen do you do you, you know how how do you think that can be addressed no, I think it is an issue. An issue. I mean, the, the the basic motives, the basic drive behind GDPR and the basic trust is, of course, something that we can be proud of as mm. Europeans. But one should be aware of the fact that sort of Facebook or whoever, uh, they can throw battalions of yeah. lawyers paid zillions of whatever currency they want uh, to sort things out. Yeah. But if you are a sort of small or medium-sized company in Ireland or in Sweden, mm. the cost of managing this uh, can be very large. And um, I, I, I think we are still in a shakedown cruise on it because I mean, I when I when I talk to lawyers and say, "Is this allowed or that allowed?" They said, "Not yet cleared out. Not yet clear uh, because this yeah. has to go to the courts, and we need to sort out if that's allowed or not." Um, and that cloud of uncertainty is difficult for smaller companies uh, to handle. Mm. But as I said, Facebook can have battalions of lawyers on it, but, but others can't. Mm. And um, uh, some of this will be sorted out by itself, I would assume. Mm. Um, but there is a provision in the GDPR. I, I think it was a five-year, uh, after five-year, there should be a review of it. That's right, yeah, coming up. And, and I hope that review is done, particularly with uh, this, this consideration uppermost in the minds of those who do it. So one of the other issues you've talked about, you know, is funding and prioritising funding. If you look at the, you know, the recovery, uh, 700 billion, is it, that Europe is putting forward, and you certainly looking at documents from the EU, you'd see there's a lot of emphasis as you said, on the green agenda, but also on the digital agenda and merging the two. Do you think there will be a change? Or, you know, in some ways, when you read those, you think there, that there has been a revolution going on because the green agenda has been definitely addressed, but also there's a lot of emphasis on the digital agenda and enabling small and medium-sized companies and European companies to grow as you would want and innovate. It, it, do you see a prospect now for the future with that, with that, that approach and with that funding? Yeah, there's, a, there's a lot of money. 20% of the money uh, is allocated to issues that are 
associated the one way or the other with the digital transformation. Um, that's mm. going to be dependent upon, of course, on the the, uh, the concrete programs that different governments put on the table of the commission to say that here's what we think we need to do with this money in order to do the digital transformation. And it's got to be dependent upon exactly how they allocate uh, the different national governments, uh, allocate that particular money. Mm. If it's going to be possible to do basic research, I don't know. If yeah. they can do tax breaks for for innovative companies, doubtful. Uh, they can probably sort of uh, uh, subsidize the rollout of broadband for better or worse, and and other things and training. I, I think training will be very important to sort of upskill the workforce uh, is important. So there are quite a lot of things. Uh, but as I said, I mean, the three things I had, sort of the basic research, the capital, venture capital, and the market size, uh, whether that would be addressed by these 20% of all of these money is uh, not entirely certain. But and what about the capital then? Do you think that that's, that's always been an issue about venture capital? How, ca how can you address that issue? You know, is it by that partnership? by facilitating that flow between the US and, and EU. It's also taxation in the different countries that, that yeah. we would have a tax regime that is sufficiently sort of conducive to development of venture capital. And um, traditionally that has not been the case in Europe. Uh, it, it is better now than it used to be, but evidently more needs to be done. Um, and, and then add to that, that's a tradition. I mean, you need to develop this particular tradition. I mean, it's much better than it was 20 years ago, uh, but we are behind uh, behind the US and uh, the UK is significantly ahead of uh, most European countries. Um, so that we need to look at how, how, how we can do that. So the capital is really available. If there are the ideas, there shouldn't be a lack of capital. And yeah. risk, risk, capital. risk is risk and capital because money will follow the ideas and where the innovation is. I mean, that's true, irrespective of where, where it is. Yeah. But do you think that you raised it again on the, you know, the spectrum for 5G and various other things that are really a big issue is, is the internal differences in policy uh, preference between EU member states. So that issue of integration, how is it, is it about a political leadership to, to say, this is what we need, this is where we're going, and to bring all the member states together on a common purpose, because otherwise those individual, we're, we're all individual nation states, make their, you know, make their own policies, and, and that can create a major obstacle to a coherent common digital agenda. Yeah, and I th it's a good leadership, but I, I would say before leadership, there has to be an awareness. Mm. Um, and that is why I sort of put always putting an emphasis on sort of the, the fact that we are lagging behind. Mm. Uh, the more we become aware of the fact that we are lagging behind, the more that could lead to the policy leadership saying, how do we catch up again? Yeah. Um, at the moment, I, I'm exaggerating slightly for the sake of the argument. Mm. At the moment, if you look, listening to Brussels, they're saying, we are the regulatory superpower of the world. We are going to regulate, so this is going to be humanely democratic AI or whatever. That's the focus. Um, I'm not saying that it's wrong, 
to do these things. But I'm saying that is not what we should primarily be focusing on. We should be aware of the fact that we are not, we can't regulate ourselves to the top of the world. Simply mm. not doable. We can only innovate ourselves to the top of the world. And we, yeah. we won't do the policy changes until there's an awareness of the dangers that are there for Europe mm. in slipping further and further behind in this particular mm. race. As I said, as I said, this 5G and mobile technologies is a good example. We are, um, we are technology leadership. But, but when I talk to Ericsson, which is a yes, uh, world lead in terms of patent yeah. and technology in this particular area, in spite of all we hear about Huawei, 85% of their business is outside of the EU. Yeah. Um, so there are the potential, but we are not using it sufficiently in Europe so far. Yeah. Well, on that point, a question here from Leonard Hobbs, who's the Director of Search and Innovation at Trinity College Dublin. And Leonard asks, do you believe that the lack of semiconductor manufacturing of chips which are the basic building blocks of the digital technology is a threat for Europe. Our capacity has been dropping for many years now and is well below the US and China. Not necessarily. I mean, if we have, if we have a functioning open global economy, that should be much of a problem. Um, if you take the really high performance ships, um, uh, we Europeans and Americans are in the same boat in the same that we are dependent upon sort of, it's, it's only Taiwan and South Korea these days uh -huh. um, that can make them. And this didn't worry anyone uh, a year ago. Yes. But now we're in a slightly different political environment and it's starting to worry quite a lot of people. And, um, uh -huh. uh, and I would say that these are extremely complicated global value chains. Uh, and the priority should be to have them working as they are supposed to work. The basic machines for doing these things uh, are coming out of the Netherlands. Um, okay. But they are used in sort of Taiwan and South Korea because the, the, the scale is immense. Uh, you can't have very many of these factories in the world. Yeah. Um, um, I, I see that Thierry Breton, the European Commissioner for Industry and High Technology and whatever, um, has now set as a name that 20% of the production of the high-end chips uh, should be in EU by 2030. Okay. Could be, um, could be. Um, um, let's look at the cost of that. Uh, another thing that you can do, of course, if you are worried, is that you have uh, you have stocks. I mean, uh, chips are fairly small things. Mm. So you can you can stock up on quite a number of them uh, without renting too much space if you want to, mm. in order to be sort of ahead of the posse in a sense, or yeah, to be to be on the safe side if there are any supply disruptions or, or mm. whatever. Um, um, but clearly, if 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 there is the possibility to have production in ships in of that sort of very long ships in Europe as well, uh, it's critical. Good. Yeah. Going back to 5G, Dave Crohan uh, from IBEC has asked, uh, have we been right in the way we've turned away from Howie and 5G, you know, in terms of that Chinese, uh, uh, because it's a Chinese company that we have, we have not worked with them too successfully. 
we have worked with them. Uh, um, the, the, the mobile communications industry is a strange one in the sense that um, they work together um, and they develop the standards, uh, the, the Ericsson's and the Samsung's and the Huawei's and whatever, the Nokia's. Um, and agree on the standards. I mean, there, there's uh, there, there are technical working groups between the, those companies. Um, we, we, if, if we go back in time, remember, uh, we didn't have a unified global standard for mobile communications. Yeah. Uh, we had sort of long time ago when you were, if, if, if you had a mobile telephone and went over the US, you had to sort of change yes, right. in some sort of way and Japan had a system that's completely different. No way that you could communicate. Um, but then industry came together and said, let's do it. And they mm. did. Uh, so there has been a fair amount of uh, cooperation. And uh, whether that can be continued or not remains to be seen. Um, I think it would be in our interest that we do continue that cooperation um, yeah. so that we have sort of a global functioning. And that also gives, of course, market size. Yes. Uh, for innovation and, and, and for, for industry. And just our final question now, time is catching up on us, uh, Carl, uh, and it's on standards and it's from Marila Belusha. EU standards are widely recognised and adapted. Is standardisation one of the key EU key strengths and what role do standards play in creating partnerships with the USA, South Korea and others? True. Um, very important questions. Uh, looking back, uh, Europe has been very successful in setting standards. Um, you, you can say mobile communications is an example of that because it is de facto the European standard that has become the global standard. Um, there are, I think there are three different standard setting organizations that are dominating in Europe. Um, a lot of this is done through cooperation uh, between industries. It's a fairly complicated ecosystem of standard setting that has been from the European point of view exceedingly successful if we look back over, over the decades. What is happening now is that primarily the Chinese are investing a lot in setting standards. I mean, that's perfectly legitimate, uh, nothing illegal or sort of uh, offensive in, its, in itself in that. I mean, if you are an emerging economic power, it's not entirely unnatural. But I think we are not sufficiently aware of the, uh, the intensity of the Chinese efforts to now uh, partly set their own standards, but partly also influence the global standard setting bodies. I, I have been following it primarily in the ITU, the International Telecommunications Union, where they also have been trying to advocate standards that sort of we have had reasons to take, take objections to, because they sort of, they were towards too much state control and things like that. Um, but I think um, it is important that one is aware of the battle for standards in the world and that Europe uh, speeds up that particular game. We have been successful, uh, but the Chinese are accelerating. And in contrast to the European approach, which I think has been the right one, it's a lot of industry. It's a lot of industry and technical yeah. stuff and technical <coughs> these sorts of things. In the Chinese, it's, it's, it's the state that, that has a stronger role in it. And whether we need to adjust our European approach remains to be seen. I was, as a matter of fact, heading a small task force that was looking into that last yeah. year and making some recommendations. 
Well, Carl, unfortunately, we've come, time is, as I say, to the end of this event. Uh, and thank you so much. And you know what? I think you have definitely achieved what you said is critical, is about creating awareness about the issue of the, the difference, what's happening with China, the US and with Europe, that we are lagging behind, that we need to take account of that and start looking together uh, and integrating that common goal and vision. Um, I think it was an absolutely excellent presentation and you've had certainly, as I said, alert us to the issue. So thank you very much for doing that. Really appreciate it. Um, and I'd like to thank our audience for all their questions, for, for their participation. You can see from that, Carl, that they were very interested. And I think you have a lot of people here who are working on the issue, I think, of research and your, your point about the importance of finance. We're coming up to that stage where we need to see both in Ireland and Europe how much money we can we can give there. And also that's something we've control about. I don't know in terms of tax, maybe around venture capitals, but in market size, it is about that collaboration. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned earlier about collaboration and that how the emerging technologies, that's the way scientists work. And that may be the way of the future and that will help address that need that, that you've so, so well flagged. Um, I'd like to thank also our production team who got, kept us going here, Lorcan uh, Mullally, thank you very much. And also to thank Seamus Allen, who's our policy digital researcher for all the work he did in preparation of this event. And as I've said earlier, this is part, this event is part of the IIEA project with Google, and it's established a, a network of think tanks from other small economies in Europe, and I think some of them are from Sweden, to examine the issue of digital sovereignty in Europe, as well as to produce publication and events. And we will be launching this network in the near future, and we'll get there'll be more details on the IIEA. And that's an example of different think tanks working together and addressing the issues that, that you've so well flagged. Um, we're coming, uh, on, it's quite unbelievable, I think, that we're coming near Easter now. So I'd like to take this opportunity to wish you a happy Easter and all our audience. I hope the Easter bunny arrives in the garden uh, next week. So thank you all very much uh, for your attendance, but more particularly, Carl, thank you for such an excellent presentation that got us all thinking and indeed working on what you would ask us to do. So thank you again and good evening. Bye thank now. You. Thank you. Next time in Dublin. This podcast is brought to you by the IIEA, the Institute of International and European Affairs. Join the discussion on IIEA.com and access our engaging videos, blogs and podcasts. <laughs>